when our troops, when our national security professionals and our development professionals go abroad and say, work alongside us because the United States is going to be here for you, we need people to believe us. And if they don't, then we can't be effective on the world stage. It is the week of August 29th, and welcome to a special episode of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's foreign policy podcast. I'm Lester Munson, your host. One year ago, on August 30, 2021, the U.S. withdrew from its two-decade security commitment to Afghanistan. One year on, we have a country ruled by the Taliban, thousands of people stranded in Afghanistan, and a rapidly deteriorating economic, humanitarian, and regional security situation on the ground. Today's episode will feature France Huang, who is chairman of the board of Allied Airlift 21 and co-founder of the Afghanistan Departure Group two organizations that worked hard to get Americans and our Afghan allies out of that country after the fall of the government and the takeover by the Taliban. We are thrilled to have him join to provide reflections on the last 12 months and the phenomenal efforts that he, his groups, and others like them have made to help those who helped us for so many years in Afghanistan. France, thanks for joining us this week. Uh, my absolute pleasure, Lester. So uh, you've got an amazing background, uh, and we've we've told our listeners about some of that. But can you speak about your role personally with Afghanistan and what uh, and what that means to you? Yeah, first off, Lester, always a pleasure to have a chance to talk about this issue. Uh, I know it's deeply important to many of us in the national security community, given our longstanding involvement in Afghanistan, 20 plus years, you know, literally a generation of national security professionals have been connected to and affected by Afghanistan. Um, my connection to Afghanistan and this operation actually dates way back in the sense that I myself am a refugee. Uh, I was airlifted out of Saigon, Vietnam in April 75 in the closing days of the Vietnam War and an eerily similar set of circumstances, right? As, as the U.S. was leaving, uh, leaving South Vietnam. Um, my father was a South Vietnamese army officer, would be considered like ANSF. Um, my mother worked for the U.S. Naval Attaché, essentially like an SIV. And, you know, we were on one of the first planes out of Saigon in April of 75. Um, after attending West Point, I had the, you know, great pleasure of commissioning not just once, but twice, the second time after serving in the White House and deployed to Afghanistan as a special forces officer, um, uh, attached to a special forces unit. Excuse me. I'm not a special forces officer, but I was attached to a special forces unit as their XO and deployed to Eastern Afghanistan, uh, and, and served alongside many great Afghans and worked and depended on many Afghan interpreters. And then my third connection to this is after, uh, leaving the army the second time, I started uh, a couple of different companies, one of which, uh, MAG Aerospace, did operations in Afghanistan. And at one point, we had hundreds of employees helping to train, equip, and support uh, the Afghan Air Force, uh, among many other units. And and we employed and, and trained hundreds of Afghans. And so lots of different tendrils of connections. And so in August of 21, a year, like so many other folks, as we watched what unfolded in Kabul, I began getting calls uh, from, you know, former allies, folks I worked with saying, Hey, the situation's getting bad. We need help. And like many other folks, you know, I, I stood up and, and did what I could. And, and that took lots of different forms and, and happy to go into further Lester. Well, indeed. Why don't we, why don't we dive into that? Tell us the, the things that you did and your organizations did, uh, once, uh, the U.S. had, had, He's pulled out largely uh, from Afghanistan and the government had fallen and the Taliban took over. Sure, Lester. I, 
So I was actually involved with two different organizations. Um, the first is Allied Airlift 21. So uh, in the immediate kind of aftermath of, of the Taliban capturing Kabul, uh, there was a group of West Pointers from the class of 2016 and West Point instructor. And one of the members of West Point's class of 2016 is an Afghan-American, and he was trapped in uh, Afghanistan. And so he reached out to his classmates, his former instructor, and they came up with a plan to basically extract him from Afghanistan, and they were successful in doing so. And afterwards, in, in true kind of West Point style, they decided to ask themselves, well, who else needs this kind of help? And so they started helping other folks uh get evacuated. And that that blossomed to this organization called Allied Airlift 21. And I was asked to come on and be the, the chairman of the board and be heavily involved in the organization. And within a matter of days, we had you know over 250 volunteers all working virtually, right? So this is kind of the interesting part of this this entire experience. You know, it's the first kind of digital non-combatant evacuation operation you know, thousands of people working over WhatsApp and Signal and Slack, you know, sharing information and talking to Afghans halfway around the world, you know, over over digital messaging. And Allied Airlift was heavily involved in trying to guide you know, hundreds of Afghans onto HKIA because back then at this phase of the operation, you know, kind of August 15th until the U.S. ended its military and diplomatic presence on the ground at the end of August, you know, your ticket to freedom as an Afghan ally was to get through the gates of Hamid Karzai International Airport, HKIA. And so Allied Airlift 21 at that point was doing two things, or three things, really. First, we were trying to assemble something called the Afghan Allies Registry, which is a name of all the Afghans that were seeking safe passage out of Afghanistan. Second, we had folks that were communicating with Afghans, trying to get their paperwork in order, trying to get them status. And third, we had essentially, you know, whatever you want to call it, handlers, movement controllers, shepherds, folks communicating directly with Afghans and trying to get them safe passage into the airport. So that was that was kind of the first phase. And that was my involvement with Allied Airlift 21. When the U.S. ended its military and diplomatic presence at the end of August, um, just literally at the moment that was happening, myself and a few other individuals found ourselves through a twist of fate responsible for several hundred Afghans who were stuck in a convoy outside the gates of HKIA, unable to enter. And so literally, we had this almost like Battlestar Galactica-like ragtag group of Afghans from all kinds of different circumstances on buses circling the gates when they closed. And so we had to make a decision at that point, what we're going to do with these Afghans. Were we going to tell them to simply all go home? Were we going to, you know, do something else? Well, we decided to do something else. And so we uh, really made a split decision. Given our backgrounds, several of us had, had worked in Afghanistan in, in a logistics or military capacity. We decided to try to get them safe passage out of Mazari Sharif. And so we made the split second decision to take this group of several hundred Afghans and make an overland journey to Mazari Sharif, this the city in the north of Afghanistan, which also has a major airport, and try to arrange safe passage out. And so that group, the Afghan departure group, ADG, ended up over the next several weeks from you know kind of end of August to September 17th, caring for, feeding, taking care of, shepherding this group of of almost 400 Afghans um, and keep them safe around Mazar Sharif while we navigated all the logistical and bureaucratic hurdles necessary to arrange 
what ended up being the first private charter evacuation flight out of Afghanistan after the U.S. ended its military and diplomatic presence. And so on August 17, 2021, uh, a plane took off from Mazar-e-Sharif carrying 380 souls, 93 families, 152 children. And that was the first evacuation flight following U.S. kind of departing Af- Afghanistan. And and both those groups are still active. Allied Airlift 21 continues to advocate for and help uh, Afghans uh, kind of navigate the process by which they get manifested onto official State Department charter flights out of Afghanistan. And the Afghan departure group is continuing to you know, find ways to work with and support the ongoing evacuation operations. And what's the what's the need today? How many uh, Americans are still in Afghanistan who would like to get out? And how many of our Afghan allies and folks who worked with us need to get out of Afghanistan today? Yeah, great question, Lester. So when you talk about kind of like Afghan allies, right? I think that that's a pretty broad umbrella term. Generally, when people say that, they mean several different groups. First, we've got what are called AMSITs, right? American citizens, dual citizens. These are Afghans that have worked with Americans in the past, already come to America, gotten their citizenship. You know, estimates range from a few dozen to a few hundred that remain in Afghanistan that, that are there probably most likely because they have family members, whether immediate or more distant, that they want to get out and they don't want to leave behind. And they're they're trying to navigate the circumstances to be able to get, you know, legal immigration status for those relatives. Um, the second category, right, kind of close, closely aligned with AMSITs or what are called LPRs, Law for Permanent Residents, also known as green card holders. Um, those folks have legal status. They're not citizens, you know, but you know, they they can travel back and forth. And so there's a number of LPRs also in Afghanistan, probably in similar circumstances as with the AMSITs in that they have somebody, an immediate family member, a more distant family member, they're trying to get out. The next category um, and the one that's probably most actively being worked are SIVs, special immigrant visas holders um, and applicants. So the United States, of course, set up this program um, by which uh, you know, Afghan allies that worked with the U.S. government in some capacity uh, could apply for and get an immigrant visa to come over. And uh, Secretary Blinken uh, briefed recently that there are approximately 75,000 applicants uh, principal applicants. That means people who can actually get an SIV because they have the status. Um, multiply that times four or five for the immediate family members that would also qualify. And we're, we're talking several hundred thousand, you know, total potential SIVs. Um, in order to travel and get manifested onto a state department flight right now, you need to be a certain, uh, made a certain progress in your SIV status. It's SIV what's called calm approval and kind of slightly beyond. Uh, the briefing was there's about 10,000 applicants that are already at the SIV calm level, multiply that times five, say, and there's 50,000 people right now that are, you know, either manifestable in flights or pretty close. Now, not, not everybody who applies will get manifested. And frankly, not everybody who even gets calm will get approved. That gives you kind of a scope and scale, just the SIV, SIV issue, right? 50,000 now, several hundred thousand potentially. Then the next category of Afghan allies are the folks who um, qualify under the State Department's P1 or P2 program uh, for for refugee status. Uh, you know, there's it's unknown, frankly. I think um, people have made estimates, but it's unknown how many folks would fall in that category. It's a large number, though. Um, you know, the 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 tough part about P1 P2s is there's no clear kind of path line 
or path for them to get their status and, and get the, a visa over. Um, the, the guidance has been get to a third country, apply, wait 12 to 18 to 24 months. And then the last category in which you can come in is through humanitarian parole, which is um, a status that allows you to come into the United States um, for a period of time and then seek some kind of permanent status. And there's technically no limit to that, but the, you know, the reality is many people have applied and, uh, you know, only a few, uh, relatively few have been approved HP or humanitarian parole status. Wow. It's amazing uh, the work that is still left to be done with Afghanistan. But uh, talk about, as, as you've been working on this, particularly immediate in the immediate aftermath of the government falling and the Taliban taking over, what kind of collaboration did you get from the U.S. government with your efforts, which were effectively... Uh, in the in the private sector, and I, I realize this may be a multifaceted answer, yeah. and some folks were helpful and others weren't. So, provide us what you're willing to say about how the U.S. government handled that. Yeah, so I'll, I'll say about you know how we function, ADG. I mean, I think there's you know obviously a lot of larger commentary about um, you know the the shortcomings of of the overall effort, but um, the groups I was involved in, Allied Airlift 21 and ADG. You know, our kind of our organ, one of our organizing principles was first to work alongside the U.S. government and second to identify the gaps in what they could provide and then step in where we could provide and try to create a public private partnership. Um, you know, I think we, anybody who observed last year clearly saw that there was a lot of gaps. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there is a, a, a really chaotic situation. And a lot of people stepped into the breach, you know, private organizations, volunteers, uh, is a humanitarian crisis of unprecedented scale. Um, so, you know, in the, in the early days, you know, we, we try to communicate what we were doing with U.S. officials, um, you know, during the, from the August 15 to August 31, 30, you know, August 30 timeframe. That was frankly pretty difficult. It was, you know, everyone was overwhelmed. Right. And so we did what everybody else did, which is help where we could. Get people in the gates, you know, you know, people have 20 years of relationships. And so people were calling everyone they knew, right? People on the ground, people at the White House, you know, from, from the White House to the walls of H. Kayak, phone calls were being made and, and favors, uh, being called. Um, after the U.S. and its military and diplomatic presence, um, it became much more difficult. Frankly, you know, I have never operated before in an environment without a backstop, by which I mean, if you're in the military, you always have a higher command to call to, right? Or at least to request some kind of guidance. If you're, you know, if you're in the private sector in your business, you've got a, a board or you, you know, you've got investors or you've got at least peers who've like dealt with a similar situation. You know, all the groups and individuals that are operating in Afghanistan starting kind of one September on, it was literally, you know, kind of unexplored territory. Like there were no rules. Nobody knew what the situation was. Um, you know, there were no USG uh, resources on the ground. And so, you know, it was extremely confusing environment to operate in. Yet we labored to communicate what we were doing with the State Department and with other elements, of the government and, and secure the support. And frankly, the reason it took from August or September 1st to September 17th, uh, to, uh, to get the first flight off the ground was we had to navigate, you know, the U.S. bureaucracy, you know, figure out what the what the situation on the ground was in Afghanistan from an operational logistical perspective, as well as from a 
how do we get a flight off in a country that just got taken over by the Taliban and then navigate international kind of, you know, laws and regulations and norms? Um, an incredibly complex situation. Um, you know, I, I know there has been a lot of, um, criticism about the U.S. overall response, uh, to the fall of Kabul. Um, but I will say this, right? At, at an individual level, I encountered many folks in the State Department, in DOD, um, in the White House that, you know, because of their own connections to Afghanistan, deeply cared and deeply wanted to do the right thing and, you know, labored tirelessly to try to help our Afghan allies. What's the situation that folks, to the extent you've seen this, what's the situation that folks that we've described here, American citizens, LPRs, and SIVs, what's the situation they're facing on the ground in Afghanistan, if they're still there? Yeah, it, it varies a lot, right? I mean, obviously, Afghanistan is in kind of dire, you know, financial, economic uh, straits right now. Um, you know, it's the, the largest input to its economy over the last 20 years has been USG spending. Um, you know, the Taliban are trying to figure out how to, you know, not just run, but frankly, you know, build a country. Um, it's, it's tough. Um, but at, at an individual level, it varies a lot, right? Like, where are you in Afghanistan? You know, what's your, what's your status? You know, if you're, if you're an AMSIT in Kabul, that's a different situation than if you're a former, um, you know, Afghan National Security Forces officer who's, you know, in Kandahar. And so I think it's a, it's hard to say it's a, you know, kind of writ large. Um, you know, obviously a number of our allies are still at extreme risk. Reports come out daily. Um, others, right, have managed to find a, a niche and a, and a place to sit it out for the long haul. Um, you know, some are still making their ways across to, Pakistan or other borders. Um, but, you know, it's, it's not a good situation for sure. And, um, while we, you know, I think the, the worst that we feared, of course, that there was going to be some sort of, you know, mass violence against all the former Afghan allies, that did not come to pass. That's not to say that at an individual level, people aren't still at extreme risk. And particularly, I have to say, um, uh, Afghan women, who worked alongside Americans who believed what we said about, you know, stepping up to build a better country, um, you know, got, you know, became educated, became involved, um, you know, took an active, visible role in rebuilding our country. Um, you know, they are, you know, they are some of the folks who are suffering the most because not only have they lost their livelihood, but they've lost their opportunities. What's your personal view on how the U.S. should be working with the Taliban government of Afghanistan? Uh, should we should we engage directly and try to make things better? Should we be holding holding them at arm's length and uh, and being a little more judicious? And, and of course, I'm asking all of this in the light of, you know, we we just took out our American special forces just took out the leader of Al Qaeda who was in Kabul. Uh, clearly being protected by the government. So what's, what's your personal assessment of kind of the way forward here for the United States? Yeah. Well, Lester, I'm, I'm no diplomat. Um, but, you know, I think, uh, we're going to accomplish more by engaging than not engaging. Clearly, I, you know, I think there are ways that we can engage that are true to our principles and, uh, that can be helpful to our Afghan allies. 
Um, you know, I think obviously it's going to have to be a combination of, you know, carrots and, and sticks. Um, you know, I, I don't believe that we can just simply, um, force the Taliban to do what we want. It is at this point, it's their country, right? They, they make the rules. They, you know, they own all the levers, uh, inside the country. And so if we want to, you know, affect this, the internal situation in Afghanistan, we're going to have to engage with the Taliban government. Okay. Uh, I, I like that answer, but let me, let me be devil's advocate a little bit. Yeah. Are we going to, are we going to get anywhere trying to work with the Taliban with carrots and sticks? Is there, is there any give there? Is there any way we can accomplish some of our goals with them? Yeah. Um, so I have two responses to that, Lester. First, we're going to, we're, we're not going to get anywhere we don't try, right? So it's worth at least trying. And I agree with you. I don't know what the outcome of that will be. Um, that being said, uh, there is something the Taliban appears to want, right? Which is the legitimacy. They, they want to be an accepted member of the international community. They want to engage. There are external, you know, lots of external influences on the Taliban, um, that they care about. And so I think there is at least the potential for us to be able to have an effect because we do have something they care about, right? But not, you know, first we hold a lot of money that we could unlock for them. And second, you know, engagement for us that gives them legitimacy in the international communities appears to be something that they crave. There's a um, there's a lot of talk about um, the last year or so uh, and its and its implications for U.S. credibility in the world that our our withdrawal, uh, you know, as and and people are going to have different views of this. Basically, uh, a little bit mangled, maybe a lot mangled, didn't go well. A lot of problems, still a lot of problems has really impacted the way uh, the U.S. is perceived and to some extent the things that the U.S. is able to achieve in other areas. Some people will go as far as to say uh, the Putin decision to go into Ukraine may have been impacted by our withdrawal from Afghanistan. What's As, as a person who was on the ground directly involved in, in events, kinetic guy, what's, what's your assessment of that thinking? Yeah, so I'll, I'll share a story. Um, when uh, the Special Forces Unit I served as an XO to uh, in Afghanistan uh, was engaging with local forces, um, I still remember uh, one time my commander uh, came back from a meet and he told me that the, the village elder was very skeptical um, of, of allying with us in a meaningful way because he says, look, you know, your president just says you're going to you're going to be leaving, um, you know, this is my, this is my home. This is my country. When you guys leave, I'm still here, right? My, I'm here. My family's here. My children are here. You know, we, we can't, we don't get the luxury of going home and we, you know, we don't know if you're going to stick by us. Uh, you know, and, you know, my commander made all the assurances that while he may leave, the United States, right, is, is dedicated to this mission. And despite what the, you know, the, what the president said needs to be read with more nuance and we're, we're not abandoning Afghanistan. Um, you know, I think myself and many others have said the issue of how we treat our Afghan allies is a national security problem. And not only, not only is it a moral imperative, right? We should do right by what we promise our allies, but even putting aside in our own self-interest, right? Why would anybody else ally with us in the future if they think that we're going to abandon them, right? The, 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 the coin of the realm is credibility. And so when our, you know, when our troops, when our, um, you know, national security professionals and our development professionals go abroad and say, work alongside us because the United States is going to be here for you. We need people to believe us. And if they don't, then we can't be effective on the world stage. And the concern is 
the you know if we don't do right by our Afghan allies, we're not going to have that credibility in the future. Your West Point guy in in the U.S. Army, uh, the president talked about his advice from military uh, leading military officials, top generals, saying. Uh, you, you, we can't stay in Afghanistan under the current circumstances without a huge increase in our in our force posture. Maybe tens of thousands of more uh, uh, people in harm's way. Is what do you think of that uh, assessment? Is it is it true that if the U.S. were to stay in going back a year, if we wanted to stay in Afghanistan, would have had to have radically increased the, our footprint there to be a successful, sustainable operation, or could we have continued? along the lines of where we were, roughly two to 3,000 troops with uh, maybe twice that from allies. Was that was that workable or, or did, in fact, it have to be a much larger presence for us to stay in Afghanistan? Yeah, you know, obviously, I wasn't in the room for those discussions, uh, but I did serve in the White House at one point uh, during the, the Bush administration. Um, I did attend, you know, interagency meetings. Um, I, I would find it hard to believe that the president would be presented with a kind of all or nothing set of op- you know choice, right? Like there are there are m- certainly more than one option besides either ramp up massively or depart entirely. And so first, I, I you know I, there's got to be more to the option set than that. Um, second, even if you're going to depart, I think how you depart is important, right? And I think the the uh, like many people have said at this point, it isn't the question of whether we you know, should have left or should have stayed once the decision was made to leave the method, the, the method means of that departure, right. Should have been, should have left our allies in a, in a better place than they've ended up. And so I think that's where the, the criticisms come, come in and, and justifiably. So let me, let me ask you one more kind of strategic question and then, and then uh, let's circle back to things on the ground in Afghanistan. There's there's a there's another debate going on in in Washington now among national security folks about how much the US can do really big picture around the world. Should we should we be playing a leading role in in every hot spot whether it's Middle East, Afghanistan, Ukraine, Taiwan, you know, we need we need to play a role in all of those. There's another school of thought that says we really have to focus on what is our main strategic challenge, which is the rise of China. And therefore, we're going to just have to uh, prioritize our needs. And that's going to mean we're not going to play, a, play as much of a role in a place like Afghanistan. What's do you, do you have any thoughts about this kind of global versus just focusing on China approach? Yeah. I, so I think those are both, I mean, maybe they were meant to, to, with more nuance, but you know, clearly we can't play a leading role in every conflict. So that's, that's kind of overly broad. Second, only focusing on, you know, one or only, you know, only our near peer competition ignores the reality that, frankly, we have interests around the world. And on any given day, we're, we're protecting those interests and asserting influence in a variety of ways, right? Economically, through the intelligence community, through allies. Um, we've got special operation forces training with, you know, dozens of nations at any time, you know, you know, A, we can't be everywhere, but we, we need to be wherever there's U.S. interest. But that doesn't necessarily mean taking a leading role. Uh, and as we've seen in Ukraine, you know, we're exerting a huge amount of influence without, uh, without troops on the ground there. And I think particularly as we look in the future, um, 
you know, in this great powers competition, that competition is going to play out through across and in through a variety of spheres, right? Not just militarily, but, you know, in the cyber sphere and the economic sphere and looking at technology, you know, development. And so we need to take a holistic approach and defend our, defend our interests and exert influence wherever there's U.S. interest, but there's a variety of ways to do that. Okay, uh, great, great answer. Uh, last question uh, for for our listeners who feel like they should do something, and I hope that's all of them, uh, to help out with the situation in Afghanistan. Any recommendations on things normal Americans can do to help out? Yeah, so just like with any cause, right, the three T's, time, treasure, and talent. So uh, the groups uh, that are still active, still need volunteers. Um, there is still much work to be done. There's still much good people can do. And so if you're interested, you know, look up Allied Airlift 21 or find another one of the, of the many groups that are still active and raise your hand and say, I want to volunteer some time. And of course, coming with that um, is bringing your talents. And, you know, maybe you're short on time, but you can help with connectivity or you've got a, a specialized skill set. You know, we've we had nurses and doctors that only volunteered. Um, you know, they weren't up all night helping to guide people through the HHI, but they said, look, if you've got a medical emergency, give us a call. And we literally had, you know, r- registered nurses and MDs jumping on the lines, you know, helping out folks from halfway around the world with virtual medicine. Um, and so volunteer, uh, if you don't got a lot of time, volunteer what talents you have. Um, and obviously, you know, these operations continue to be privately funded. Uh, in terms of the volunteer group's involvement. And so, you know, the extent that you can support financially, it's, it's always deeply appreciated. France, uh, again, thanks for being with us this week. This is really a terrific conversation. No, thank you, Lester. My, my absolute pleasure. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank our editor, Claude Jennings, and our producer, Gabriel Otis, for their terrific assistance. Join us next week for our last episode of our summer series podcast, Breaking Chains, Fighting the New Global Repressors. We will talk to Richard Goldberg of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies as he provides his insights on Iran. Don't miss it.